As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By the day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Philip. Um, and now, after hearing these beautiful, ancient words of old, we are going to sing about the wonderful words of life, the ancient words in our, in our beautiful scripture, the word of God that we keep with us and hold with us every day. Please stand as we sing wonderful words of life. i 
Thank you. You may be seated. Children five and under are dismissed for Children's Church.
Good morning, Ashley River. Isn't it a great day to be in God's house? I so hope you've been blessed by this terrific music. God is here. Would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this another beautiful Lord's Day and the opportunity you've allowed us to be in your house to hear your word proclaimed. Father, we thank you for each one here. May they receive a blessing from being here and go away, leaving this place, feeling better about you and ready to follow you in a closer way. Thank you for each one here. May they receive a blessing from being here. And we just pray as the pastor brings a message later on that souls will be touched and lives will be changed. And we can go away from this place saying we have worshiped truly our God. Father, thank you for this time together. Bless us as we go our separate ways. Lead us, guide us, and direct us. And we'll give you the praise because we ask these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. morning, Ashley River Baptist Church. How y'all doing this morning? Good. Okay. I'm glad somebody's awake. Fantastic. Let me share with you how much of a blessing it is every week to hear God's beautiful word proclaimed in song with our choir and Anne Marie's leadership. Fantastic. It's just wonderful to worship in this way. I want to also say to our congregation that uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed working with the staff of Ashley River uh, each and every week. It has been a joy. There is so much fun that we have in the church office. We laugh, uh, we kid around, but we do the work. We do the work of the church. And if you um, happen to you know, bump into somebody who's on staff here at Ashley River, just extend a warm welcome to them to say thank you to say thank you to them because they do such great work. We were at staff meeting this past week and uh, I just, I was sat back and I was just amazed at the ideation and the creativity and the collaboration among all of our staff members. So with that, I just wanna thank our staff for your work each and every week, okay? So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter 8, and in your pew Bible it is 1096, 1096, Romans chapter 8, in your pew Bibles that's 1096. Uh, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then followed by Acts of the Apostles, and then after Acts is the book of Romans. And then the book right after Romans is 1 Corinthians. So if you get into Corinthians, you've gone too far. Okay, so Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. Now I want to make sure we understand that, you know, the last two weeks, last two Sundays, we've talked about hope. Uh, two Sundays ago, we talked about Jeremiah uh, chapter 29, and the key verse there was Jeremiah 29, 11. And we talked about the promised hope, how God had promised the Israelites through the prophet Jeremiah that after 70 years of captivity in Babylon, he would be faithful to bring them back. And he did. God can be trusted. And his promised hope was fulfilled. And then last week we talked about living hope. We went all the way over into 1 Peter. And that apostle uh, Peter had written this tender letter to the church uh, scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And he himself talked about living hope. And last week we discussed the three aspects of living hope. The new birth, that when you are born again, you are born into a living hope. And then the second aspect of living hope is a genuine faith. Do you... Is your faith, when it is tested, does it stand? Does it carry you through? Are you progressively growing into the image of Jesus Christ as you walk in faith and by the Spirit? And then the third aspect of living hope last week that we discussed was this inexpressible joy. Joy of knowing that while we sit in this world and sometimes difficulty comes into our lives, 
we have a living hope that there is a future that is far more glorious, far more beautiful than we can possibly imagine. And so we're going to dig a little bit more deeply into this concept of hope today in Romans chapter 8. So if you can, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 8, and we're going to begin in verse 18. And it says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. For in this hope we were saved. Let that sink in. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Father, we thank you for these words that the Apostle Paul wrote 2,000 years ago. They ring with such truth and such rich theology. Lord, as we study this passage this morning, may it rekindle in our hope, in our hearts, the hope of the eternal, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the gathering of the saints to him. Father, for those of us in this room this morning, we wait eagerly for that day. And we pray all of this in the capable name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, and our friend. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. For those who have ever been a Christian for quite a while, you know that the book of Romans is kind of a high watermark book in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul wrote perhaps one of the most beautiful treatises of what the gospel entails. When we say that we as a church want to live and share the gospel of Jesus Christ, all we have to do is follow Paul's argument in Romans to help the world to see that in fact there is hope in Jesus Christ. You know, Romans uh, begins in chapter 1 with a declaration that all people are sinful before a holy God who cannot, who cannot look on sin. We are all sinful before him. For three chapters, Paul expresses the sinfulness and the fallenness of mankind. The Bible says that no one is righteous, no, not one, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That truth is hard for many people to hear, much less receive. But the Bible is clear that we are all sinful before a holy God. Now, if the story ended with that, it would be bad news. But the reason that it's good news is that in chapter 3, verse 21 of Romans, 
Paul uses a three-letter word. That three-letter word is but. But. We're all sinful. But. A righteousness apart from the law has come. And that righteousness is Jesus Christ. When Jesus came, he said, I have not come to destroy the law. I have come to what? Fulfill it. And because he fulfilled it, he is the only one who can stand before God holy and blameless. And anyone who is in Christ, anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ, is no longer counted, their sins are no longer counted against them. They are in Christ. They are justified, declared not guilty. Their sin has been atoned for. They are forgiven. And God himself forgives us in Jesus Christ. For those of us in this room this morning who have entrusted our life to Jesus Christ, we have that hope that Jesus saves. And we see here uh, the sin of chapters 1 through 3 give way to the salvation of chapters 4 and 5. And, and Paul says in chapter 4 that it is by faith that you are saved. He uses Abraham as the example. It's not by works. You can't do enough good works to get into right standing with God. The only work you have to do is trust Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. And then in chapter 5, it talks about reconciliation. To reconcile is to make right. Two parties that are in discord, it's to reconcile. In 2 Corinthians, it says that God reconciled us to himself. That's, that reconciliation has to happen. And then we move into the third phase, from sin to salvation to the third phase, which is sanctification. And we see that in Romans five, I mean 6, 7, and 8. In chapter 6, he talks about freedom. Freedom from the flesh of your earthly body of your tendency towards sin. We are freed from it because we are in Christ. In chapter 7, we are liberated from the law. The law no longer has a hold on us, Paul says. The law was fulfilled by Jesus Christ, and therefore we are liberated from the law. And then we move into chapter 8, where our text is this morning, and Paul continues that good news by saying that the third aspect of sanctification is this, is that we are secure in the Spirit. The Spirit sustains us until we are glorified. This idea of being sanctified means that we are becoming progressively more and more and more like our Savior. And so in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you, are you this morning in Christ Jesus? Have you trusted him with your life? And if so, then you have the hope that Paul speaks of in the latter part of this chapter. Chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. And so I want us to look at these three aspects of hope or three anticipators of our future hope. If you uh, followed along as I read this morning, I was kind of blown away by the number of times a particular word showed up. And it's a, the version of the word is groaning or groans. Three times in each, one in each paragraph, we see the word groaning or groans. It's an interesting word. But we see that there is an anticipation, and there are three that anticipate. How many of you remember the song Anticipation by Carly Simon? Do you all remember that song? She sang that song, Anticipation. Well, we live in a world of anticipation. All of us are anticipating something. Every year you anticipate your birthday, do you not? Some of you with great joy, some of you going, oh no, not another year. Some of us anticipate holiday. How many of you, uh, Christmas is your favorite time of year? Okay, you anticipate 
Christmas or you anticipate Easter? How many of you, when you, right before school started, how many of you kids and children anticipated a new school year? It's exciting. You're looking forward to something new. How about graduation? We look forward to graduating. We look forward to moving on in the next chapter of our lives. Some of you are looking forward to meeting and marrying your mate for life. You look forward to marriage. You look forward to your first job when you graduate from college. You look forward to that first full-time job where you really are using your skills and your talents that you learned in college or in a trade. It's fascinating how we are constantly anticipating the next part of our lives. Some of us are looking for the birth of a newborn baby, the anticipation of waiting for that day, for that baby to come. Others of us are looking forward to retirement. We're looking forward to that day when we hang up the cleats, as they say, and we move into the next phase of our lives. Well, we see here that anticipation is a good thing. The opposite of it is anxiety. The opposite is anxiety. That is, that you're looking to the future with worry and you're fretting about what may be. But we live in a world here when the Bible tells us that we are anticipating something, we know that there is something good for us. There's something beautiful that is waiting for us. And so we see that in this passage. So the first anticipation, or the anticipator, is the creation. The creation, look at what it says there. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for what? The sons of God to be revealed. The creation is anticipating the revealing of the sons of God. And it's interesting because he, he expresses this in such a beautiful way, but then he says this in verse 20, for the creation was subjected to frustration. You see that word frustration? For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Now, on Wednesday when I taught, I said, I'm going to diagram some sentences today. Now, how many of you remember in English class having to diagram sentences? They don't do that anymore, do they? Now, don't, oh, do they? Okay, good, some schools do. Uh, but none of us remember it, do we? <laughs> but here's the key. Look at what he's saying here. He says in verse 20, for the creation was subjected to frustration. And then there's a comma. So he's now talking about uh, the creation being subjected to frustration. And then that comma introduces a separate clause. And it's basically he's highlighting the fact that the creation itself didn't subject itself to frustration, not by its own choice, he was saying. And then he gives even more detail, he said, but by the will of the one who subjected it. So what Paul is really saying here is, for the creation was subjected to frustration, and then he gives a clarification, but then he goes on to say this, in hope that, do you all see that? The creation was subjected to frustration, and then if you keep reading in hope that the creation itself will be liberated. Do you see now we're getting to the core of what Paul's trying to say? Is that he is saying that the world that has that we live in is subject to frustration. But it's going to be restored. Now, let me, let's follow this. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God created all the earth, and all, he created Adam and Eve, and then he said, it is very good. And then guess what happened? Mankind 
fell. They disobeyed God's command. And when Adam and Eve fell, they thrust all of creation into the fallen state. You see, that's what's happened. And so the author here, Paul, is saying that the present sufferings that we are experiencing are a result of the fall. In chapter 3, God tells Adam after he sinned, Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. Later on, after the flood, God tells Noah, the fear and dread of you, the fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and birds of the air. Do you understand that the creation has been affected negatively by the fall of humankind. And because of that, you, when you go out into your yard to tend your flower beds, what do you have to pull out? Weeds. Why? Because weeds are a part of the fall. Why is it that if we were in here this morning and a snake crawled right down the aisle, how many of you would run? Why? Because a snake is an animal that we now fear, right? In The Wizard of Oz, what did Dorothy and her friends cry out? Lions and tigers and bears. What? Oh my! The point is, is that we live in a world now where things are in discord. They are not right. We are frustrated. And because of that, we see the elements or the aspects of the fall. But hope, hope points to restoration. Look at what it says there in verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. The idea is that the creation is groaning, waiting to be released, waiting to be freed from its bondage to decay and aging. And because of that, the hope is, is that it will be released. And that's what happens in childbirth. When a woman is in birth, you know, having birth, the pains are excruciating. And I'm not a woman. But I, my wife, when she was in, I didn't say a word, okay, because she was in excruciating pain. But what happens? As soon as that baby is born, the pain gives way to beauty. The pain gives way to glory. And that's what the author, Paul, is saying here. In the book of Revelation, I just talked about Genesis and how mankind thrust all of creation into frustration. But in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, here's the good news. There will be a new earth where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. There will be a river of the water of life with the tree of life yielding fruit in every single season and leaves for the healing of nations. So you and I, though we are frustrated by this aging body, though we are frustrated by the creation which is itself is, is out of order, it's in kind of a chaotic state, there's coming a day when God will make all things new. God will make all things new. And that is the first part of our hope this morning, is that the creation itself groans until it is released into that glorious hope. But there's a second anticipator, and it's the church. The church. Those of us in this room this morning who are born-again believers, we're part of the church. We're part of Jesus' family. And we groan inwardly. We anticipate this, this new body, this new birth to be fully realized. Look at what it says there in verse 23. Not only so, that is not only the creation, but we ourselves, here's another diagramming, but we ourselves, Paul's talking about himself, and he's also talking about those 
who are reading this letter who are in the church in Rome. And he is telling them, we ourselves, and then there's a comma. And he then gives a descriptor of the ourselves. And who is the our, ourselves? Who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Y'all follow that, okay? We ourselves, and ourselves are those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. They are those who are part of the group that Paul's talking to. And then what does he say? We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. For our adoption as sons. And then there's another descriptor. Look at what it says there. Our adoption as sons, comma, the redemption of our bodies. So the adoption is really a redemption, a redeeming of the body. So think about this. We ourselves are groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. Now, what does it mean when it says we who are, have the first fruits? You know, it's very important for us to understand what these terms mean. What does it mean when we say first fruits? It's important that all of us in this room know this. First fruits is actually mentioned first in the Bible in the book of Exodus. Did you know that in the book of Exodus, Moses tells the people that the first fruits of their crop are to be offered to the Lord? And in Leviticus chapter 23, God gives the Israelite people, through Moses, the seven festivals that they are to observe. Now we have to know what those seven festivals are. The first festival, according to Leviticus 23, is the festival of Passover. So I'm going to come over here and I'm going to say, because we're reading this way, I know you read left to right, Passover. Now what is the Passover? The Passover is an observance and a celebration of the time that God freed the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. He brought them out of bondage. And how did they come out of bondage? Every person. On the 10th day of the month, they took a lamb and they sacrificed the lamb and they took the blood of the lamb and they sprinkled it on the doorposts and the lintel as a demonstration of their faith that God would deliver them. And therefore, that night, the 10th plague was announced that all the firstborn in Egypt would die, but the angel of death would pass over. The angel of death would pass over those houses that had blood on the doorposts and lintel. Today, Jewish people still celebrate this particular festival. It's called the Seder, the Seder service. It's when they remember, they remember that God delivered them. The second festival is the festival of unleavened bread. And unleavened bread has no leaven in it. What is leaven? It's yeast. What is yeast? It's a bacteria. In the New Testament, it talks about the fact that yeast is like sin. And so unleavened bread, it doesn't rise. It's very flat. The reason it does is because they have to be ready to leave Egypt. And so they don't have time for the bread to rise. And God tells them each and every day you are to eat unleavened bread. It's the idea that you are now my chosen people, a holy priesthood. And so the unleavened bread is celebrated for seven days. So you have Passover, and then you have unleavened bread. And unleavened bread ends on Saturday night. And then you have the next festival. Guess what festival that is? First fruits. The festival of first fruits. God said that when you come into the land that I am giving to you, the priest is to go and take that first stalk, that first sheaf of grain, as a remembrance to God that he himself will provide for them. And that, that priest would wave that sheaf of grain in front of the Lord because it's the first fruit. There's many more that will come behind it. God will richly bless them. This is the beauty of the first fruit. And so the Israelite people understood that. Well, guess what day that occurred? On Sunday. 
50 days counting forward, is the fourth festival. It's called the Festival of Weeks. For seven weeks, 50 days forward is the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. And it is a time for God to give the law to his people. And when he gives them the law, in the Old Testament, it's written on tablets of stone. But we learn in the New Testament that the law that we have been given through Christ is written on the doorposts of our hearts. I've just mentioned the first four festivals. They all occur in the spring. And they were all fulfilled by Jesus Christ at his first coming. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. He is the only one with unleavened aspect of his body because he was holy, pure, without sin. He was the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. He was the fulfillment of the unleavened bread. And he is our first fruits of the resurrection. And he is the one who gives us the law. The law is written on our hearts. Everybody turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the very next book. And I'm going to read something for us because we need to understand this truth. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. Paul actually contemplates the idea, the concept the proposition that Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead. He actually does in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at what he says here. Because <clears throat> people were saying he hasn't been raised. Verse 12, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ, listen to this, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. I'm up here for no good reason. You're out there for no good reason if Christ is not raised. And then he goes on to say, and so is your faith. Your faith is useless. It's futile. More than that, we are then to be found false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. So Paul's actually saying, I'm a false witness if Christ is not raised. And then he goes on to say, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And here's a hard one. You are still in your sins. I'm still in my sins. Our faith is futile, and we are still in our sins if Christ was not raised. Have you ever contemplated that? The Apostle Paul contemplates that in this chapter. And then verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who've gone before us, who've died, physical death, what does he say? They are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all other men. <laughs> That's the Apostle Paul saying, if Christ is not raised, we're still in our sins. Our faith is futile. Our preaching is futile. There is no reason for us to meet here on Sunday morning. But remember that three-letter word that Paul used in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, but, but, and look at what it says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Amen and hallelujah. Jesus Christ is our first fruits. For since death came through a man, that man being Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, that man being Christ. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ 
all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. Amen. I mean, this is great news that Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection. So he is our Passover lamb. He is fulfilling the unleavened bread feast. And then he is the fulfillment of the first fruits. And then in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, at the very beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, he says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Oh, the world needs to hear this message. They think that Jesus is just someone to follow because he's a great moral teacher. No! Jesus did not come to make the bad good. He came to make the dead live. And if you're alive this morning, you will know that you have a hope of a future adoption and redemption in your body. There's a day coming when your body will be transformed. I cannot wait for that day. I look at my body every day and I go, man, when is this going to ever end? I get excited because I see this. And I know there's others out here who are saying, okay, you've gone over the first four feasts. What about the other three? Are there any out there thinking about that? Well, you know me. If you know I teach Sunday school, I like to give homework. And your homework this morning is to go to Leviticus 23 and identify those next three feasts and then connect it to the fact that those three festivals will be fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Amen. That is what the Word of God teaches us all the way in Leviticus where we read through the Bible in a year and then we end up, we putter out. But it's in Leviticus chapter 23 that we learn that Jesus Christ fulfills all of this. I am so excited when I think about that. So turn back to Romans 8 and we'll finish up here. Romans 8. Look at what it says. Not only, our, not only but so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. The fact that we are in Christ, we have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit living in us. We have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit living in us. Look back at verse um, 15 of chapter 8. What does it say? Verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of the adoption of sons. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. It's fascinating. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This adoption language is beautiful. I have a good friend from childhood. He was an uh, only child. His name was George. I talked to him on the phone just yesterday. When his father died at 91 years of age, George went through some paperwork because his mom had passed on a couple of years prior and so now he was the only heir and he was going through the paperwork of his parents. It was in that searching through the paperwork that he found for the first time in his life that he was adopted. He had never known it. His parents loved him with so much love he never even thought that he might be from some other parent. And so he went on a search. It was just, he's 56 years old. For 56 years, he believed he had two parents and he had just laid them to rest. But now, George went on a search. And yesterday, just yesterday, he called me and said, I found my natural father and my half-sister. And it's amazing to me because he started talking with his dad, his, his natural dad. And he said, let me guess, you're about five foot ten, 210. He said, yeah, how did you know? He said, I bet you love baseball. He said, absolutely. I played baseball until I was 51 years old. My, my friend George plays baseball today. 
He'll be down at the Cal Ripken Park in Myrtle Beach this week, and I'm going up to see him. George loves baseball, and they talked for hours and hours on end, talking about that connection. But the message here is that the adoption that George underwent was that he was given a new name, and he was given a new life, and those adoptive parents loved him as if he was their own. That's what biblical adoption is all about. God loves us so much that we are just like his own. This is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in 815, we receive a spiritual adoption. And, and at the moment of conversion, you are spiritually adopted into the family of God. But there's coming a physical adoption that's in the future. We're predestined for it. It's coming. Because when you are in Christ, you're not only given the Spirit as a guarantee. Look at what it says in Ephesians 1, 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is what? A deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So when you believed, you were adopted into his family spiritually, but there's coming a time when he will redeem your body. Redemption is being saved from sin, gaining or regaining a possession in exchange for a price that was paid or a debt that was settled. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into the hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Do you have the first fruit of the Spirit? It is sealed for the day of redemption. In this hope, we are saved. Look at what Paul says there. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So not only is creation anticipating the future glory and the revealing of the sons of man, not only are we part of the church family waiting for that day when we will be restored fully our bodies will be changed in an instant and we will be ushered into the kingdom of God but then thirdly the spirit the spirit is also an anticipator look at what it says in verses 26 and 27 in the same way the spirit helps us in our weakness we do not know what we ought to pray for but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express so here you and I are we know that creation has been affected and we ourselves even though we trust Jesus Christ we still live in this world with a body that is subject to the things of this world we we're subject to the fallen state of this world so therefore that's why it's hard for those of us in this room who struggle in our prayer life because that is a spiritual discipline and to the extent that we allow the spirit to have control of us it's to that extent that we can then do the spiritual things of God but to the point at which we live in this world when we let the flesh kind of have greater control over us it's then that we feel alienated from the spiritual disciplines of God. Does that make sense to you? If you're living in a world, if you're living in sin, it's harder to read the Bible. You don't want to do that. It's harder to pray. It's harder to give. It's harder to show mercy to others. 
This is what we're living in in this world. There's a lot of people who are living far from God. The things of God are very alien to them. And our job is to show them the joy of letting the Spirit have 100% control of us. Does the Holy Spirit have his way with you? Does he? Because if not, then you have to check, why is it that I am not letting the Spirit lead me? I was talking to a friend the other day, and they said, what does it mean for for us to grieve the Holy Spirit? And my answer was this, is that we grieve the Holy Spirit when we are not walking by the Spirit's will. Do you know why we pray? Most Christians, they pray to get something. This is what we do. We pray to get. No, that's not why you pray. The Bible says very clearly, the reason we pray is so that we can be in fellowship with God the Father. That we can align our will to his will. Not my will. This is what Jesus did in the garden. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. So if Jesus is our example in everything, then it surely is in prayer. Jesus spent time over and over and over coming to the Father in prayer. Now, if Jesus can do it, if he can go away, spend time alone with God, can't we? Should we? Absolutely. But it even says that even when we come to God in prayer and we don't know what to say, the beauty here is the hope is, is what? That the spirit that lives in us gives us the words to say. I don't know about you, but I find tremendous comfort in knowing that as broken as I am, God still wants me to come before his throne and pray. That he wants to hear from his child who he has adopted and who he will one day redeem. Are you ready to take that step of saying, Lord, I surrender all to be in step with your Holy Spirit? That's my prayer for all of us this morning. That's my prayer for Wes Ashley. You know, I brought up this card because I want you, I've given you one homework already. I'm going to give you two. As you walk out the doors today, I want you to take five of these cards. It shares, it's an easy way to share with someone who is not church that this is a place that preaches, teaches, and tries its very best to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take five of these and hand them out to friends, family, co-workers, neighbors, sports team coaches, recital teachers, school teachers, whomever. Hand them out and say, come and come to the well that Jesus Christ has given us, this wellspring of water of life. Will you do it today? As you leave today, do that, okay? Now with that, we have to realize that there are three anticipators of future hope. The creation is waiting. We are waiting. And the Holy Spirit waits for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for this word. Oh, Lord. (laughs) It's amazing to us that you loved us enough, that you sent your one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Solomon said, God, you have set eternity in the hearts of men. May we, may we cling to that in hope of that future glory. Lord, until then, help us to run the race with perseverance, the race marked out for us, and help us to share the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone we meet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Please stand with me as we sing this song. And if you want to come and give your life to Jesus Christ for the first time, maybe, if this is the first day that you have ever said, you know what, I need to settle the issue that I need to be in Christ so that I can receive those future blessings. Maybe you're in this room this morning and you're going, you know what, I, I get what Randy's been saying, but I haven't really been walking in such a way that the Holy Spirit really has free reign of my life. I want to recommit my life today. If that's you, you come forward and I'll pray with you. And if you're in here, you want to join this fellowship. We've had lots of people join. We've got people who want to consider baptism as that step of obedience to Christ. You come and we'll celebrate with you. So as we sing, remember all of that and let's sing up to the Lord this beautiful song, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. You come. Amen.